Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. This is a hugely important command that he's giving this man. Why? Because, you see, in Leviticus 14, God had prepositioned a requirement in the Levitical law, which although those in the Old Testament era didn't fully realize all the implications at the time, it was a law that would only find fulfillment in Messiah when he would come and which would serve as evidence of his arrival. The law required that a leper who was healed was to go to the priest who would then go through a ritual not to heal the leper. You see, there was never a provision for the priests in the Old Testament to heal people, none whatsoever. <laughs> You know, there is for us as New Testament priests, we can pray for people and, and, and see them receive healing, not in all cases, but we can take them before the Lord and watch him touch them. We can lay hands on them and see that happen. But the priests didn't have that same ability. There was no provision for the priests to, to even begin to see miraculous healings of any kind. So, so they wouldn't have realized the implications, you see. But all they had was a ritual that they could go through by which they could declare that leper clean and to be healed of that leprosy. If they declare that, yes, they, I certify they've been cleansed. They can read now. They've been clean. They no longer have the, the leprosy. They can rejoin the congregation again of Israel. They can become part of the community again. And as mentioned, there are only three recorded healings of leprosy before Jesus came. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't any others, but the scriptures sure don't tell us that there were. And none of them in the three that we do have recorded would have fallen under the requirement of this law. The only leprosy that did occurred with healings which Jesus performed. And now, get ready, here it is. And now, here is Jesus telling this man to go to the priest to follow the rituals and requirements of Leviticus 14. But in doing so, Jesus isn't just telling him to go fulfill the requirements of the law. Yeah, that was important. That's what was going to enable him to rejoin the community. But he's sending him so that the priest will know that the Messiah has arrived. This moment should have been a powerful testimony to the priests that this man goes to and to all priests. I mean, the network should have lit up. But sadly, we know that it... It didn't, because by and large, the priests of Israel were blinded by unbelief. The truths contained in the scriptures which Jesus fulfilled are both overwhelming and amazing, and, and yet so many people in Jesus' day missed who he was. And so, too, so many people in our day miss the truth of who Jesus is as the one the scriptures have and continue to point to as the Savior of the world. Are you glad that you didn't miss it? I pray you didn't miss who Jesus is. I pray that your faith this morning is in Jesus Christ. If it's not, you can do that even now as you're sitting here watching this live stream because there's no magic formula, there's no magic prayer. It's a confession of belief in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God who came in the flesh, 
walked this earth to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin, sin that you could not make good on your own, sin that you could not make payment for in any way, shape, or form through any good works on your part, but that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing fully who He is, believing in Him and who He says He is, and believing that the work that He did on the cross was sufficient to reconcile your account with God, to make you acceptable to God again, placing your faith in Him, repenting of your sin, of who you are as a human being, of that sin nature, of repenting of your way of life, repenting, not repenting in the sense that that now you're going to change it, now you're responsible for changing your life. No, repenting, knowing that you can't, but you're willing to go a new direction with Jesus. Repenting literally means turning and going 180 degrees, like an about face in the army. Doing that about face, and you're now prepared to go as He now leads you, and He will lead you into the paths of righteousness as you choose to follow Him. And then making Jesus your only Savior, your only God that you'll serve, and following Him. You're willing to do that? You can put the words of that prayer into your own language any way you want to say it to Him, and He's going to receive you. He's looking at your heart this morning. But if you haven't, do it. Don't wait. But if you have, aren't you glad that 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 you saw Jesus for who He is? That you know what the Scriptures were declaring about Him? Aren't you glad that He heard your cry and reached down and touched you and healed you from that hopeless state of spiritual leprosy that you were in? You know, He didn't have to do it, but He did it anyways. We cry out, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And His answer to those of us who have placed our faith in Him was resoundingly clear. I am willing. I am willing, he said to us. You know, the old hymn says it best. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots. We were loaded with them and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed, I'm not going to say it, he washed me white as snow. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white, not through my good works, not through my self-effort, not through my keeping of the law. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I went before the throne. I stand in him complete. No leprosy, no blemish, no spot. Pure righteousness, not of my own making, pure righteousness of His making, of His healing power. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.
Aren't you glad? Aren't you rejoicing this morning that he heard your cry? as that sinful leper. And he answered and said, yeah, I'm willing. I'm willing. And he reached down and touched you and healed you. We'll look on. Tells us in verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And so now Jesus, again, draws himself away from the crowds. This will become his pattern. And as I pointed out last week, he doesn't do it just to simply get away from ministry. This is not just getting a break from ministry. It is, but that's not the real purpose. His purpose isn't just to get away from people, but, but it's to refresh himself for ministry and for work that he has to do with the people. And, and here Luke tells us that the secret to his refreshment in these moments is prayer. It's prayer. In other words, he's getting away so that he can refresh himself through a time of quiet communion and reflection with his heavenly Father. He wants to take time to share with him what his day has been like and to receive fresh vision and revelation and instruction as to how the Father wants him to proceed. He wants to hear from the Father. He needs this time of quiet communion with him. You know, here again is something that often makes us so different from Jesus, so different from him. For Jesus, prayer was a, a time of refreshment. But, but for a lot of us, I think if we're honest about it, we don't want to say it. But if we're honest with it, prayer is, is, is somewhat drudgery. It shouldn't be, but oftentimes it is. It's something we tend to engage in only when time permits or when we feel up to it. But for Jesus, prayer was a priority and it was never a burden. Never. For Jesus, it wasn't about engaging in it only when time permitted or when he felt up to it. But he purposely made regular time for it, giving it absolute priority over everything else that, that he was doing. Because unlike most of us, he knew that prayer was the most important thing that he needed to do. See, even though he was taking a break from the crowds and from practical ministry and from practical activity associated with his ministry, as he drew himself away like this, he drew himself away to pray because he knew that his ministry to the people was powerfully impacted as he prayed. Prayer was a priority to Jesus because he knew that prayer was the most important thing that he could engage in for himself and for the people. Prayer is what gave him the connection that he needed with the heavenly throne room to know how to powerfully minister to people as he walked this earth in the constraints of human flesh. This was something that even his disciples didn't fully understand yet for their own lives. Their inability to deliver the demon-possessed boy reveals this truth, and Jesus pointed it out to them. We talked about this passage several weeks ago, but I'll read this to you in verse 19 of Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by what? Prayer and fasting. You know, I don't know if you've read any Andrew Murray. I would encourage you to read some of his books. They're hard to read because he's so pointed in the statements he makes. I know I feel conviction when I read them, but he's written some great works on prayer. But he said this about this passage, and he's right on. 
He said the disciples felt ashamed that they're not being able to cast out the evil spirit. When Christ had sent them out to do the work, they had come back rejoicing that the evil spirits were subject to them. And here, in the presence of the Pharisees, they'd been brought to confusion by their impotence. They felt it deeply and asked the master to tell them what the cause of their failure was. He answered with one word, unbelief. They had not been living in communion with God and separation from the world. They had neglected prayer and fasting. And that's what prayer is. It's communion with our Heavenly Father. Prayer is the most important ministry that you and I have as Christians and as servants of the Lord. And yet, in, in speaking for myself, you know, I told the group out there this morning, I'm not going to indict you. You can indict yourself if you relate to this this morning. So I'll just confess it to you from my own life. For myself, I can tell you that it's the most neglected and oftentimes secondary ministry that I engage in. I only engage in it when I have time or when I feel feel up to it. I got so much other stuff, Lord, I got to take care of for you. Maybe you find that to be the same true in your own life, that this is how it is for you. If so, maybe it's time that all of us need to rethink this and change our course, because if if this is the way we're treating prayer, we, we can know it's, what, it's not what God wants, and it's not the way it should be for us. I mean, look at Jesus. He made this a priority, and he was God. And yet in the constraints of his human flesh, he knew that he needed this time of communion with the Father so that he could find refreshment so that he could find direction, so that he could find the word he needed to do the ministry that God had called him to do. If Jesus felt that, why would we not? Because we're so busy, Lord, doing everything for you. All the Lord's saying is, come away. Come away with me. That's what I want. Come away with me. May we repent. May our hearts be changed on this aspect of our ministry, because it's an important aspect of our ministry. Well, look on. Jesus, in verse 17, tells us, Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, even though Luke makes no specific mention of locations for this portion of the account, Mark in his gospel tells us that at this point, Jesus was ministering in Capernaum. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us that. And, and Capernaum is located on the northwestern shore of the Galilee. It's not far from Bethsaida. It's not far from the mount where Jesus will be sharing the Beatitudes. But as Jesus continues his teaching ministry, he begins to draw an audience which included a significant number of religious and spiritual leaders, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And in addition to drawing them from every town of Galilee, Luke tells us that some of them have traveled a considerable distance to hear Jesus speak, coming from Judea and Jerusalem. So clearly, Jesus is not just getting the attention of the people in general. He's now starting to draw the attention of the spiritual leaders. Now, at this point, it's important for us to understand who these different religious leaders were. First, we haven't mentioned here the Pharisees. The Pharisees. The Pharisees literally means separated ones. And this was a segment of Judaism that had separated themselves from everything that they thought was unholy. They were extremely devoted and zealous. But for many of them, religion was focused on an exacting compliance to outward obedience to the law. 
rather than from where it mattered most, an inward submission of the heart. See, the heart wasn't behind what they were doing. God's heart was not behind the outward appearance of compliance that they were giving to the keeping of the law. Look, it's, it's not wrong to, to live the things that God has asked of us in his word. We're to live obedient lives. And yet at the same time, living an obedient life without our hearts not being in it, it's distorted. It changes things. And these men, by and large, held an inflated view of themselves. Because of their outward form of spirituality, they saw themselves as law keepers in a way the common person wasn't. And they believed that only God loved those who did what they did and that everyone was separated from the love of God except themselves and those disciples of theirs who were doing and living as they were living these hypocritically spiritual lives, you see. Now these guys, some of these guys, not all, but some of them are going to become the biggest antagonists of Jesus and his ministry as time goes by, seeing him as a threat to their power and to their authority. I'll then also mention are the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, these are also referred elsewhere in the scriptures to as the scribes. The scribes. Now, the teachers of the law, the scribes in ancient Israel, were they were learned men whose business was to study the law, to, to transcribe it, and write commentaries on it. They were also hired on occasions when they, the need existed for a written document or, or when the interpretation of a legal point was needed. They were the people people would go to. And, and the scribes took their job of preserving the scriptures very seriously. They would, they would copy and recopy the scriptures meticulously, even counting the number of letters and spaces to ensure that each copy was perfectly recorded and correct. You know, one thing we can say good about these guys is that we, we can thank them for giving us the Old Testament as we now have it in, in, its, in its accuracy and in, its, its, in the confidence that we can have in it. It's because of the scribes. They preserved the scriptures that now have given us the Old Testament. However, here's where the rub comes in with these guys. By Jesus' day, the scribes had gone far beyond the simple interpretation of Scripture itself, and they added a whole lot of man-made traditions and their own reinterpretations to what God had said in His Word. They became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law as they saw it, while ignoring the Spirit of God that's behind the law that was given. And things became so bad that the regulations and traditions that they added to the law became more highly regarded by the religious leadership and the people than the law as given by God in Scripture itself was. This is what led many of them to confront Jesus as well and to have these explosive confrontations with him because Jesus could have cared less about their traditions. He could have cared less about their interpretations. What he cared about is what God said in his word, which is what we should be concerned with. Look, it's not to say commentaries were wrong. It's not to say even their introduction of some traditions were wrong. No, but it's the way they elevated these things in such a fashion that they became the equivalent or even higher in the hearts of men and women than God's word was. That Jesus was not going to tolerate then or now. And you know, in a lot of ways, the, the scribes, I think, are still with us today in, in some segments of Christianity, or at least they, they hold the same attitude in the approach of the scribes. 
It shows up in, in their preachings and teachings when they begin to veer from the simple truths of Scripture and to start adding their own ideas and reinterpretations and their speculations to the simple truth of God's Word. It's not that sharing our thoughts on a passage is wrong. I do that from week to week. Or that speculations are, not, are necessarily wrong. But, but they become wrong when we make them the equivalent of the Word of God itself. Or present them in ways that do not in any way communicate, you know, or rather that we present them in ways that, 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 that make people clear, make clear to people that we're not making it the equivalency of the Word of God. But that's not what's happening in many circles. What we see happening in many circles today is that ideas and thoughts and personal beliefs are being equated to the same level. We really see that happening right now with a lot of the prophetic teachings that are out there. So many teachers who are giving their own ideas about things that are happening in our world with, with a sense of thus saith the Lord or the Lord has told me. And so many Christians clinging to those teachings as though it is the word of God. Look, speculations are just speculations. Interpretations are just interpretations. What does the Word of God say? That's what's important. And that's where we need to lead people. Look, I love teaching prophecy. You guys know that. If you've been here any time or you've listened on the web, you might have listened to my teaching on the book of Revelation. I think it's it, we can't ignore the, the prophetic scriptures. A third of the Bible, more than a third of the Bible is composed of prophetic scriptures. They have relevance. Practical relevance, understanding of future events that are given to us. And, and, and it's fun to speculate sometimes, but we cannot make those speculations and our ideas about events and things that we sing that the scriptures clearly are not saying, and then somehow equate those to the scriptures and to make them the equivalent of scripture. That's a dangerous thing to do. And it's a wrong thing to do. And it's a wrong thing to do that when we do that with the scriptures in general. Be careful that you don't fall prey to this kind of scribal pattern as you listen to teachers of God's word or even in your own presentation of spiritual truth to people. Keep to the simple truths of God's word and let God's word be his word. Let God's word speak. Simply teach, preach, and share God's word simply. I hope that you find as you listen to the teachings here that I'm doing that with you guys. I hope that what you find is that you're hearing more of God's word than you're hearing my ideas about God's word. But here Luke is telling us that Jesus is clearly drawing the attention of this crowd, the Pharisees, the, the scribes. Soon it's going to be the Sadducees too. We'll deal with them when we come to them. But he's drawn the attention of these guys and not just the crowds in general. But, but these various religious leaders of Israel are now joining the crowds and they're coming to listen to what Jesus has to say and to see what he's doing. And, and it's not confrontational yet. But, but it'll soon become so as Jesus is not going to line up with their ideas about spirituality and because of the threat that he's going to pose to the spiritual power over the people that they've established for themselves. That they're not going to want to let go of. One other thing to note, Luke matter-of-factly mentions that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. He matter-of-factly mentions, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, most of the time we'd, we'd, we'd kind of gloss over that because we think, well, it's only logical to assume that wherever Jesus was present, the power of the Lord was present to heal, right? Well, yes and no. 
yes, Jesus is 100% God, and so the potential is always there for Jesus to heal. But the Gospels do seem to communicate the idea that there were times when God's power was more strongly working in Jesus than at other times. For example, we're told in Matthew that while he was ministering in his hometown region around Nazareth, that tells us in Matthew 13, verse 58, now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Clearly, there was a dynamic at work here in Nazareth and at other times which seemed to limit Jesus' power to do these kinds of miraculous things. Now, this does not mean, and I want to make this perfectly clear, this does not mean that Jesus stopped being God while he walked on the earth. But it does align with what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If you want to turn there with me, let's go over there really quick. Go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Actually, let's start in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.